0: Hello, I'm Cassidy, and welcome to the seventh episode of Series 2 of Made at UCL, the podcast. This podcast explores the world of UCL through the groundbreaking research and vital community work conducted by our staff and students. Proximity is something that we are all very aware of these days. Hey, you, reaching for that loaf of bread right in front of me. Yeah, you, wait your turn. Two meters, please. You may have guessed I was not one of those people that was super excited about the lifting of restrictions. I felt safe in my COVID bubble with both of us wearing a mask. Stranger danger. Though, admittedly, I did look forward to being able to be in close proximity to those I care about. The strictly digital interactions were getting old and depressing. So since we are all dealing with our personal and societal mixed feelings on the lifting of restrictions and getting closer, we here at Made at UCL thought, why not explore this topic as a theme? In this month's episode, we're exploring proximity through relationships and spaces, both public and remote. Our first guest is an architect who specializes in spatial design. In this segment, you'll learn why proximity is an
1: important aspect of the way we conceive of space as personal space
2: around ourselves.
0: Then we'll talk to an anthropologist who studies how different cultures utilize smartphones and discover why...
2: Proximity is the basis of ethnography itself.
0: And finally, we'll talk to a research fellow who looks at how various nature reserves' biodiversity is impacted by visitors. He's also been working on a very unique project. And through talking about this project, we'll find out why...
3: Uh remote sensors we use gives us some proximity to the things we are studying and brings people closer to our research to the environment where we we are working
0: let's get started
1: hello i'm alan penn I'm the Professor of Architectural and Urban Computing at the Bartlett at UCL.
0: Alan is also the co-founder of Space Syntex, an organization that provides expertise in architecture and urban planning. And in his research, both in academia and business, his focus is on spatial design.
1: I'm interested in understanding how architecture works. You know, you you visit places that you think, goodness me, isn't that wonderful? And they really seem to have a an atmosphere that it can be awe-inspiring or can just be really nice. And you want to find a way of bottling it, you know, being able to reproduce it. And as a designing architect, that's what you, you know, you, you hanker after, is being able to create the atmosphere of something that you've been really... Uh, impressed with or affected by. But these things are never formulae. They're never very simple. They're very complex. The things that are always the ones I find the most interesting tend to be things that have evolved over long histories and have a A You know, they've got a, a, a whole series of people who have influenced them over time.
0: Speaking of evolving over long histories, Alan offers an example of a historical place you may recognize that he himself helped evolve.
1: The, the the example that we often fall back on because it was a really nice example is Trafalgar Square, which was a millennium project. And the idea was Trafalgar Square used to be separated into an upper level in front of the National Gallery and then a lower level of the body of the square and a big wall separating the two, maybe four or five metres high. And the body of the square never had anybody passing through it. It had tourists who would go in there, and had pigeons. But all the Londoners walked around the outside edge, so everybody moving through to go to the surrounding streets and to go to the station and so forth. They walked around the edge, and there was no mixing between the tourists and the Londoners. So we studied that, and in fact there was traffic all the way around all four sides of the square at the time, the cars and taxis driving around, and so it's a big roundabout. And that was one reason why nobody got into the square apart from the tourists who had the time to cross the road. So we looked at that, we studied how people were using the space and observed it, and made the proposition that they demolish the wall and create a staircase and pedestrianise it. And it has transformed the space. So the space now has people moving through it. It's popular. The traffic has been removed from the the north side and pedestrianised, which in fact was the start of the congestion Charging Zone. And so that's had an effect all over London uh, because that's given wider pavements and more cycle paths and a whole range of things in London. And they all came out of that one project.
0: The space created in Trafalgar Square led to a much more utilizable space that the public can really enjoy now. And Alan talking about the opening up of Trafalgar Square led to a discussion about the most important factor in space design.
1: Well, I would say the main thing is not to, not to bound your space. So people say a space. In fact, what you're doing is you're designing something which fits into a whole pattern of space to which any individual space connects. So you don't just design a room; you design a room in a particular position within the house or within the the building. And it's how it connects to everything else that's a key factor. One of the problems of architecture and architects is very often they'll draw a red line on the plan around their building site, and fail to think enough about everything else around that line. They think they're being paid to look at what's inside the line. In fact, it's how what you do inside the line relates to everything else that's outside the line that really matters. So it's the thinking about the whole rather than just the part or the relationship of the whole and the part is the key thing.
0: Yeah, or like how like a kitchen might be open where you can see the living room and so maybe you could cook while you're watching TV or something if you're thinking about outside of just the kitchen, yeah.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, one of the things that, well, lots of people do is they think about they're going to move into a new house or a new apartment. One of the things I always sort of think about when going around and looking at them is uh, what is it that is specific and idiosyncratic about the way this is laid out? Are there long lines of sight? Can you see from here through to the garden or from there into the living room? So somebody can be cooking in the kitchen while other people are sitting in the living room and they're not separated because there's a line of sight that passes through. And if you isolate them from each other, then there's only the one activity. But if you have more richness then you have a greater potential for different kinds of activity and different ways of exploiting the space.
0: Before the interview ended, I felt like I couldn't let Alan go without getting a couple of questions in about the you know, big deal thing that's going on right now. I, I wanted to also get into uh, COVID-19 and how that's kind of affected things. So how has COVID-19 changed the way public spaces are being designed?
1: Do you know what? The Department of Transport in the first wave did some really interesting things where they sort of took road more road space away from cars and put it into, over to pedestrians. And they did it for making space for socially distanced queues and all sorts. It'll be really interesting to see whether or not that sticks as we come out of the pandemic. But there was it was an absolute policy by the Department of Transport to take advantage of the opportunity of less traffic to experiment with what they could do to uh, give more space to pedestrians and to cyclists. And I think that's been really successful. Certainly in London, it's, it's made a difference. But I think that shift of roads and streets being much more than just about moving traffic through is really important for cities. You know, they're about socialising and shopping and sitting and watching the world go by and you don't really sit and want to watch cars go by you you want people and so the ability to stop is all important
0: now that things are starting to open up again and we are learning how to live with covid is your space syntax team moving towards designing spaces that will facilitate safe in-person social networking to kind of help society connect again or is there another focus
1: so, I mean, I think we're really thinking about this issue because of the well, the nature of the pandemic raises the question of how should you live life in future? And there's a whole set of questions. Uh, one of those questions is, will cities survive? Or will everybody go off and work from their you know, their second homes in their country villages and not go to city centers anymore? Personally? I don't think that's, um, that's right. I think that people will go to cities and that cities will survive. They're a remarkably robust uh, sort of form that has evolved over centuries. But I've no doubt that the nature of ho- homes will change. So I think people have been doing it during lockdown. They've been adapting their homes to become places of work, as well as places of, you know, family and leisure. And it's very interesting to see how people have been doing that. There are some people who who work in the kitchen, and work from the kitchen. And so what does that mean? What does it mean about their family relations? If somebody's sitting in the kitchen and working, doing their Zoom calls or their Teams calls in the office, that stops anybody else in the house going in and making themselves a cup of coffee, because the kettle boiling will be disturbing. So we're thinking about all of those things but thinking in particular about what's that mean for the design of space and the space as architects is the real real space.
0: Now that we've met an architect who studies the proximity of people in shared spaces, let's move on to an anthropologist whose research methodology involves being close proximity with his research subjects. This is...
2: Daniel Miller. He's a... Professor of Anthropology, University College London. I'm an anthropologist. I worked for many years on issues to do with our relationship to to things and to consumption. And then as the digital became increasingly important, turned my attention to the use and consequences of digital technology. And the most recent uh, research has been specifically on the impact of smartphones.
0: Smartphones are something that almost all of us use every day for pretty much everything. From Googling who that actor is on TV, to updating our social media accounts, to reading the news, to buying sandwiches from Brett. Not to mention all the normal phone uses like calling and texting. We've become dependent on them. And this dependence has come at a cost. A cost at which Daniel is understandably concerned about.
2: I feel worried that we're in an area like the smartphone, where there is so many heated debates about the consequences of smartphones. Every day in the newspapers, you will see things about fake news and the impact of politics, and that it's undermining the family, and that everybody's on the screen, or there's psychological disorders, or it's addictive, and a tremendous amount of anxiety about the consequence of the smartphone. The point about our work is neither to support or negate any particular argument. Our commitment has to be to scholarship. Our commitment has to be, hold on, we need to have also some studies who don't have kind of like axes to grind. They aren't trying to make people anxious or indeed alleviate that anxiety. And if we're going to understand any issue, it needs to have that broader context of what is this doing hundreds of times a day within people's lives.
0: To understand the impact these devices have, Daniel put together a team of 11 researchers and spread them across different areas around the globe.
2: The whole point is really to make sure that we are representative of the world and not assuming that everybody is the same as ourselves. The first factor was to make sure. That we had a global range. There would be people working in Chile and Brazil, but there's also people working in China and Japan and Africa and Europe and so forth.
0: And these researchers spent 16 months in these designated areas. And so during that 16 months, what what are some of the things that, that people are doing? How are they getting themselves involved in the communities?
2: The idea of anthropology, particularly ethnography,
0: Ethnography is a type of research practice that studies cultural phenomena from the study subject's perspective.
2: Is that you don't simply take people in terms of what they say. It's not based so much on questions and surveys and focus groups or even interviews. The key is what we call participant observation, because what you want is a sense of what people are actually doing rather than what they claim about what they're actually doing. And for that, you need to be present when they're doing it. So you start to get yourself involved in a community.
0: For the first two months of my 16 months fieldwork in Japan, I lived with a family in North Osaka. This allowed me to experience family life directly. During fieldwork in NOLO, I lived in an apartment block characteristic of the area. And this formed a rich and immersive way of sharing time and space. The Latin
2: American church was a good point to meet Peruvian migrants and get to know them. So I could live the experience from within. Well, in my case, for example, the very first thing I did on sort of day two, I think, was volunteering for the local theatre group. And that was great because it turned out that there were long interludes for the volunteers when the play was actually going on. We'd spend like an hour and a half just sitting around uh, making the tea, etc. And you could get to know people. And when I say involve your community, what you're also doing really is making friends. And when you're making friends, it means that you can start to do work at a deeper level. They start to trust you. They start to feel more comfortable if you're actually involved in their own smartphone practices. You know, you could start to be on their WhatsApp groups, on their Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And that allows you to actually know what they are in fact doing with the likes of Facebook and, and WhatsApp. and Actually, it's important because with something like smartphones, there is such a huge discrepancy between what people say and what they actually do. So typically, for example, for my older informants in Ireland, a lot of them would start by saying, oh, well, yeah, I use a smartphone, but, you know, I try and keep it to voice and, and texting and, you know, a couple of messaging services. I'm not too bothered by the smartphone, etc." After a while, you realize they're using maybe 30 apps on the smartphone, and they're using them pretty constantly to do all sorts of other things. So you have to be careful about what people say. It's often more to do with kind of justifying themselves or legitimating themselves.
1: I've been known to spend six to seven hours per day,
0: and that's a lot of that's a lot of a big proportion. After spending 16 months in Ireland collecting data, then analyzing that data, then writing academic papers on the subject, then even writing a book about it with a research team that was recently published by UCL, I wanted to know, has this research like changed your perspective on smartphones? It has. I mean, I think that
2: even though I use smartphones myself, uh, much as everybody else does, I do not think I had appreciated just how tightly it has become kind of entwined in every aspect of life, because there is so much that is so quickly taken for granted. And the problem partly is even the use of the word phone. Because it's called a smartphone, we tend to think of it as a device for communication. But actually, once you start researching it, you realise that you could take a completely different area like transport. And it's not the same when you're driving with GPS on your smartphone as it was when you used an, you know, an A to Z. It's really changed your ability to get around. And uh, equally, the fact that you could take an Uber through a smartphone app or plan your journeys or research the place you're going to. And there are many, many areas which have nothing to do with necessarily communication, you know, what we, what we thought of as uses of a phone, that turn out to be ways in which the smartphone has changed our life.
3: Have money. So they prefer phones better than banks, because banks are very far from them. And you can withdraw money. Wherever you are, at your own time, instead of the bank, because the bank closes at six.
2: Because it could equally well be the use of visual materials, the way we do research, the way we do our shopping. And I, I think it was hard to appreciate the, this sheer breadth of um, the smartphone's capacity for changing the way we do pretty much everything that we're engaged in day to day.
0: Do you think we as a society need to change the way we use or design our phones?
2: So one of the things that came out of our research is that what makes the smartphone smart is the creativity and the ingenuity of the user. A field in which that became very evident was the field of health, because we started our work thinking that we would assist in the development of what's called mHealth, mobile health apps. And there are uh, thousands of these apps being developed, you know, to assist people uh, with health. But we found, actually, there was very limited usage of these things in terms of particularly older people who were kind of unwilling to take on this kind of proliferation of bespoke specialist apps. Instead, we found something quite different.
0: I found that they don't use these apps. Instead, the app they use the most is WhatsApp. WhatsApp is the app they feel more comfortable with, and in some cases, it is the only app they use.
2: So today, for example, almost immediately somebody falls ill, the friends and relatives will form a WhatsApp group to organize their care for that person. But equally, you could use it in all sorts of ways for gaining information about health or sharing information about health. And actually, it's, the, it's this usage, not the one envisaged by the designers, that has turned out to be so important in terms of actual health benefits. So it really changes the whole relationship, actually, between research and policy. We found that uh, what we needed to do as anthropologists was to document this usage, what you might call sort of the best practice of ordinary people. And one of the things we did was to create a 150-page manual on WhatsApp for health which are not things that we came up with at all. It's simply things that uh, the researcher in Brazil observed as part of their ethnography and realized, you know, these are really good ideas and maybe other people would like to know about how to do it that way. And that I think is one of the kind of more exciting things that really emerged from this research because it may affect an awful lot of research in the future.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Daniel and his team's research, you can check out his book, The Global Smartphone, which is available online for free at uclpress.co.uk.
2: And we hope it will give you a real new understanding of actually what a smartphone is and particularly how it's impacted on people's lives. We hope it's written in in accessible language and a plus, it contains a whole lot of uh, short films. So you actually get to see the people that we've worked with and hear them talking about their experiences themselves.
0: Go check it out. Now that we've looked at how the way we inhabit our digital selves is influenced by our cultural surroundings, let's switch gears and talk about how the way we inhabit natural reserves affects the biodiversity in that area. Our last guest is...
3: Guilherme Ferreira, it's Guy for short. I am a research fellow at UCL working at the Biome Health Project.
0: Guy has dedicated his research to protecting biodiversity. Much of his work involves the use of camera traps to keep track of what animals are present in a given space. Though, in this recent project, he has also been utilizing audio recordings. We'll get into how he captures these recordings and the very cool thing that he's been able to create with them later on. For now... Let's learn a little about the project itself. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Biome Health Project is and what it aims to do?
3: The project tries to understand how biodiversity responds to human pressure and how we can use conservation interventions to mitigate the impact of these pressures. So we do this by establishing field sites in different parts of the world and in these areas, we conduct biodiversity surveys across a gradient of pressure. So, for example, in Nepal, we survey subtropical forests with camera traps and acoustic record recorders to survey subtropical forests across a gradient that goes from the national park, the buffer zone of the national park, and areas outside this buffer zone where you have basically agricultural areas.
0: And you have any... I can't remember how many hours worth of like data and stuff that you have to sift through,
3: right? Yeah, we have millions of camera trap images and hundreds of hours of sound recordings from these places, from Kenya, Nepal, Borneo, and Fiji. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a massive data set. And that's, that's one of the challenges we have in the end. It's almost a big data thing that we are working on.
0: Yeah. Um, how, how did you collect the sounds?
3: Yeah, so these sounds come from the forests of Borneo. So in Borneo, we're working in partnership with Imperial College London. They've established a field experiment there trying to understand how biodiversity responds to the fragmentation that's happening in the forests because of oil palm expansion. So we, we work in partnership with this team from Imperial College London, led by Rob Ewers. And they use... Small acoustic devices that will record sound clips, you can set the device to, do, to record for any amount of time you want. So we set them to record five minutes or 15 minutes clip, and they will record throughout the day across this, this gradient of forest degradation. And then you start to understand how, the, how a healthy forest sounds like and how this sounds how the sound will change as you go from the health forest to a more degraded forest to, the, to oil palm.
0: Can you tell us some of the the sound differences you noticed between like healthy and, and not?
3: There are two ways you can analyze this kind of audio data. You can either try to identify species because many species will make sounds that you can tell which species they are. So some birds have very specific calls and you can say this was bird X or this was bird Y. So this is one way you analyze this data. You listen to the recordings or you have a machine learning algorithm who will listen to the recordings and say, but X was here, it wasn't there. And then you try to, from this part, and you start to understand how, how spaces are responding to the deforestation gradient, for example. The other way is just to try to understand the soundscape in general, the whole sounds, the whole sound of the system. So you can use some machine learning algorithms to to say, okay, that's the sound of a healthy forest because we survey like a, a large patch of a protected forest. So that's how a s- healthy forest should sound like. So let's see how this change across the gradient. You can just listen to the forest and tell the difference in forest, quality in forest, the status of the forest by the sound you're recording there.
0: And I guess if you're thinking like a full sound, like what's what's the big difference is hearing, okay, in this one, we were able to pick up all these different species. And in this other one, we hardly heard any Species, or there was only a couple of those in there, so maybe that would be like a that would be an indication of the biome being affected.
3: Yeah, because the like forest degradation it it caused the community of wildlife to change. So Mm -hmm. some species will only occur in old growth forest and will not occur in degraded forest, and the other way around. Some some species will occur in degraded forest in oil palm for for, in oil oil palm plantation, but will be very rare in old growth forest. So, just by this difference in composition, like one species in in the old growth forest, but not in the oil palm, just by this difference in composition, you can start to tell the environments apart.
0: that mm. I mean, but it's it's such a cool way of, of um, collecting that kind of data and not and not disturbing as much either, I think, because you're because you're leaving something there as opposed to. Having to necessarily follow a bunch of animals, or or maybe just uh, disturb them, but but doing it, and they're they're in their own environment and not having to deal with researchers watching them.
3: <laughs> That's basically the approach we have throughout the project. Like in Borneo, we we use these acoustic recorders, but in other places we also use camera traps as well. So it's it's a similar mechanism. You just leave a device behind, attach it to a tree, and it, it will take a photo of any animal that walks by so it's it's not too disruptive and it's a very efficient way of recording wildlife because you can just replicate your effort instead of having one person observing animals you have 150 different devices in different places surveying the same area at the same time
0: oh i was just thinking about you had mentioned the fiji one and the coral reefs do they do like the underwater camera chops or like out underwater like Audio traps <laughs> is
3: you're saying it. I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, it, it's it's almost this like the the recording device is very similar. It has a special case, but apart from this, you put this underwater. It will record sounds at every time interval you you tells it to do. So we have loads of recordings, underwater recordings from the coral reef. Image is a bit different because we don't use camera traps. Like camera traps, they work automatically. It has passive infrared sensor that when an animal walks by, it triggers the camera. There's, I don't think there is anything quite like that for underwater. So what, what we did in, in Fiji, in the coral reef, we had divers with video cameras. I think they use two cameras at the same time. So you have a, you can use this afterwards to measure fish, to get a three dimension ID of the coral as well.
0: I would want to be one of the people taking the data for that. (laughs) That's very cool. In addition to using the audio recordings as data for the project, the team also thought of a creative way of sharing their collected sounds with the public by creating a meditation series. So where did the idea of creating a meditation series come from?
3: So the, the Biome Health Project is funded by WWF UK, which is a international conservation organization. And I guess being a conservation project, we want to get people involved in anything that's related to nature. So if we want to have a chance to have a healthy planet in the future, we need people to enjoy, to have a good experience with wild places and wildlife. So apart from the research bit, understanding the science behind how biodiversity responds to pressure, it's also important to have this engagement part as well, when the general public develops some kind of attachment, some positive relationship with nature. So I guess it comes from, from this and also with the stress and anxiety levels going high with the pandemic. I guess people were looking, searching online for meditation and relaxation clips. So, why not the one with recordings we have from one of the most diverse forests in the planet?
0: And I know like for me, like I listening to it, I, I, I've i done field work before I did some field work in Panama and uh, listening to like the Borneo one, for instance, obviously a very different part of the world, but still, you know, a tropical rainforest kind of area and having those sounds reminded me so much of it. it actually made me. Emotional listening to it because it brought me back to that place and what what it was like there and and you know because people can't travel and get to those places I imagine a lot of people that that have experienced some of those places of the recordings whether that's the Cornwall one or the Borneo or I, you know it gives them a sense of like oh like that that must be so nice <laughs> I don't I don't know
3: <laughs> yeah and I, I had a similar experience in Brazil as well when. Before, when I started showing my camera trap photos and camera trap videos to people who lived in towns near the national park where I was working, for example, they were 50 kilometers away from the national park, but they, for some species, they didn't really know the species was there, just in their backyard, basically. So I would show some images, some photos to them, and they would say, oh, I was thinking this was only in the Amazon, very far away from me. And then I, I guess there is a changing mindset when, when someone realized that goes from oh it's out far far away from me in the amazon from being oh it's just in my backyard it's actually there it becomes part of the reality and i guess some people will start caring about it
0: In this month's episode, we looked at how smartphones are changing people's lives around the world, both negatively and positively. Then we looked at how space design matters in public spaces, with or without COVID. And finally, we found out how scientists are keeping track of how tourists and things like the palm oil business affect diversity in national parks, and how it's possible to experience these areas without ever leaving your home. Thank you for listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash may at UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by me, Castie Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions and additional sounds from freesound.org. Special thanks to Daniel, Alan, and Guy for sharing their time and expertise. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests this month. Thanks again for stopping by. Take care of yourself and stay safe.